Psalm 97, about midway into your Bibles, and then head right a few books to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, I'm going to pick up reading in verse 10. And watch this closely. We'll refer to it again later on. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declare the Lord, and I am God. I am God. The word God there we see twice, verses 11 and 12. I am God, he says very clearly. Typically, you would think if the word God is there, it's Elohim, but it's not. In this passage, the word God is El, just El, the singular form of God. Elah is two. Remember this, Bible students, that there's El, which is one, Elah is two, Elohim, which is three or more. Typically, God is referred to as Elohim, which makes sense when you consider the triune nature of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's Elohim. But here, in Isaiah 43, He is simply El. I am El. And it's as though He's trying to impress upon us the singularity of His nature that He alone is the one true God. There is no other God besides Him. There is no other Savior. He is the one. Now turn back to Psalm 97 and note in verse 7 at the end of the verse, it says, Worship Him, all you gods, which is Elohim. Skip down and look at the last part of verse 9. You are exalted far above all gods. So in Isaiah 43, it says, I am El, I am God, and there is no other. Just me. But then here in Psalm 97, he says, worship him, all you gods. So is there one God or are there many gods? And we're faced with a curious conundrum tonight regarding God and gods. And we'll get to it in a little while. But let me give you four things as we get started. Four things to note about Psalm 97. I want to dive right in. Number one, notice that at the heading of Psalm 97, there isn't one. Psalm 97 is written anonymously. Now, Charles Spurgeon, who I tend to agree with, especially on this issue, among the Puritans, he's the one who maintains that this psalm was written by David. So he would give this a date, circa 1000 B.C. Somewhere around there, 1000, 1020, somewhere at that time, written by David himself, but others come along and give it a later date. And I just want to give you a Spurgeon quote on this because I thought it was a little humorous. Charles Spurgeon said, in 1860, mind you, he said, Modern critics are always intent upon ascribing the Psalms to anybody rather than David. And he said, they count themselves successful in dating this song further on than the captivity. Captivity, 586 B.C., so it would be further on than that. 
And he says, they do so because it contains passages similar to those which occur in the later prophets. One psalm in this series, Psalm 101, is said to be of David. And we believe that the rest are in the same place and by the same author. The matter is not important, and we only mention it because it seems to be the pride of certain critics to set up new theories, and there are readers who imagine this to be a sure proof of prodigious learning. We do not believe that their theories are worth the paper that they are written upon. And while I lean toward Spurgeon's view that Psalm 97 was in fact written by David, we're going to leave it anonymous. And I think it's important to be left anonymous because no other name should take away from the majesty of the one true God spoken of in this psalm. His name is the name that matters. So Psalm 97, as far as the one who penned it, is anonymous. Psalm 97, secondly, has no Hebrew heading. So there's nothing saying what kind of psalm it is or even to the choir director or anything like that. But note that every psalm in this cluster of psalms, from Psalm 93 to Psalm 101, there's a a series of psalms that are all placed together. They all maintain the theme of God's universal reign. These are all God-reigning psalms, God's dominion psalms. His eternal empire over all the earth and above all else, human and otherwise. That He is the glorious reigning King. So if you just want some God-reigned psalms, Psalm 93 through 101 is a perfect place to go. But there's no other heading to describe it other than we see in the context of the other psalms. Number three, Psalm 97 neatly divides into three sections, and that's how we're going to take it tonight. If you're a note-taker, you can jot these down. Section number one is the first five verses. And I call it the certainty of the king. The certainty of the king, verses 1 through 5. Secondly, a cosmic conundrum. This is where we'll get into dealing with God and the gods, verses 6 through 9. The certainty of the king, verses 1 through 5. A cosmic conundrum, verses 6 through 9. And finally, verses 10 through 12, we will leave off tonight with a call to cheer. A call to cheer. Psalm 97 then has no apparent author other than the Spirit of the living God. No Hebrew heading. It neatly divides into three sections. And then finally, Psalm 97 is, I'll tell you with assurance, unquestionably a Savior psalm. And I've been talking about this. We've been going through the Savior Psalms. And you could say that every psalm is a Savior Psalm because they're all ascribing praise and glory and honor to the Lord. And that's true. But there are these specific ones that are either spoken of Jesus or by Jesus or about Jesus. And we've been trying this summer simply to hone in on those 20 to 22 psalms. And it's not definite because depending on who you ask, there are one or two that should be on the list, one or two that should not be on the list. I've got my own list, which is what we're going through this summer. But this one is without a doubt a Savior psalm, meeting that criteria. Speaking of Jesus, who is himself singular with L, that is, with God. So let's begin with the certainty of the King. Part one, the certainty of the King, Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Man, just let that settle. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. It's repeated. If you look back in Psalm 93, 
Verse 1 says, The Lord reigns. He's clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded Himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Why? Because the Lord reigns. Psalm 93, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Where is that? Psalm 99, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. So three times in this cluster of psalms, the Lord reigns. It's Yahweh Malach. Yahweh Malach, the Lord, the name of God, the great I Am. Malach, meaning reigns, has dominion, has authority and power over all. And these three psalms, among all these psalms, are now declaring this. And this little two-word phrase in the Hebrew, Yahweh Malach, sets the tone for the whole psalm. And as a matter of fact, sets the tone for the entire Bible. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. That's the point. Kings come and go. Presidents rise and fall. Rulers show up and depart. But the Lord reigns. He's the only one. The only God. The only Savior who always reigns. That word, by the way, note this. It's interesting. In fact, it's more than interesting. It's incredibly important. The word reigns is in the Hebrew perfect tense. And that's even worth noting in your Bibles because we don't see it in the English. We completely miss this in our English translations. And some translations would say the Lord has reigned or the Lord is reigning or the Lord reigneth. The Lord reigns in the Hebrew is in the perfect tense, which is literally translated, the Lord has begun to reign. Or the Lord has assumed his kingship. The Lord has assumed his rule. That's what the phrase is defining. And Derek Kidner, in his really excellent commentary, in fact, if you want a great commentary through the Psalms, get Derek Kidner's classic commentary. It's a two-part. You can get it paperback through Amazon. I think the first part is Psalm 1 through 72, and then 73 through 150. And there are brief commentaries on each one of the Psalms, really well thought out. Uh, Kidner's a scholar, a conservative scholar in his own right. He says the following about this particular tense, this Hebrew perfect tense. He calls it the prophetic perfect. The prophetic perfect, he writes, which expresses the certainty of future events as though they were already complete. Its decisive tense points to a day when the king will come in power, a theme which is prominent in the psalms of this group. In other words, the psalm begins, the Lord reigns, but it's talking about the Lord is coming to reign. It's future with a sense that it is so absolutely certain to take place, we sense it now as if it's already happened. There are other verses in the Bible that are that way. Other prophecies, other words. I love what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. God has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's kind of an example of what you might call a prophetic perfect tense. Because it's as though we're already there. God raised us up with Him. He has seated us with Christ Jesus in heavenly places. Now, the chairs you're in may be comfortable. But this is not a heavenly place. And we are not in heavenly places. But Paul says he has done this. Why? Because it's so absolutely certain he writes it as if it's already happened. That's the Hebrew perfect tense. That's what's going on when the psalmist writes, the Lord reigns. 
We've also used another word for that, and you Bible students might want to jot this one down, but it's a proleptic phrase. P-R-O-L-E-P-T-I-C. A proleptic phrase. And a proleptic phrase, that's the closest word we can come up with that speaks of this kind of thing. Something so absolute, so assured, it's written as though it's already happened. It's a word that means of present reality of future events. So to say the Lord reigns, you know what? He does right now. And He will when He comes. The Lord reigns over this sanctuary tonight. The Lord reigns over my heart. I assume reigns over your heart. Reigns over this fellowship. Reigns over our lives. The Lord reigns right now. And He's coming to reign. And the psalmist, as he writes this a thousand years before Christ, three thousand years ago, he's pointing to a time yet future, even yet future for you and for me tonight. And whether you call it a proleptic word or a prophetic perfect, Psalm 97 is written of the certainty of the coming King, Christ Jesus. That's what this psalm's about. It is a Jesus coming psalm. It's a right back to Revelation kind of a psalm. So if I get a little excited, forgive me. But the psalmist is writing of Jesus revealed in His coming kingship. There's a, a song we sing around Christmas time. One of my favorites. We introduced it years ago when we were meeting in the barn. And that song is In the Bleak Midwinter. Doesn't sound like a real cheery song. In the Bleak Midwinter. I remember seeing the title for the first time and going, Really? And yet you read it and you sing it and it's amazing and it's beautiful. There's a line in it that says, Heaven cannot hold Him, nor can earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when He comes to reign. It's written by uh, Victorian era poet Christina Rossetti. And uh, her timing is slightly off. The truth is that heaven and earth won't flee away when He comes to reign. He's going to come to reign for a thousand years, a millennium, on earth. Read Revelation 20, it's all there. And then after that, yes, heaven and earth will flee away. That's at the, the great throne judgment, which you read about in Revelation 20. But when He comes to reign, He comes to establish His kingdom, fulfilling all of God's promises to Israel as well as to you and to me. But the sentiment is great when He comes to reign. What will it be like? What will this world be when He comes to reign? Talking with my son-in-law earlier tonight about the whole Jeffrey Epstein scandal, which is just disgusting and sickening. And if you know nothing about it, I don't even really want to talk about it, but it's basically an extremely wealthy uh, billionaire connected in all kinds of places politically on both sides of the aisle. And this guy was in prison for uh, all kinds of, let's just say, sick conduct, dark and he committed suicide in prison. And now all the thing is about, well, what, you know, conspiracy theories abound because he shouldn't have been able to get away with that. There was no way to do it in the cell and the guards were there and they supposedly fell asleep. And so everybody's thinking that perhaps he was done in to hide what he really knew about all the powerful people that really were connected and involved and engaged in some of the things that he was engaged in. And so Josiah and I are talking about this tonight and, and just saying it, it's just getting more and more sick. And he said, yeah, you know, it's... And I made the comment, I said, I mean, I know things like this have always taken place on planet Earth. But it just seems to be more... And I paused and Josiah said, brazen. 
Anyway, that's it. It's more brazen. The lawlessness is more intensified. It's more obvious. It's more right up in your face. And we're seeing these types of things. And you know what? It's not going to be like that when He comes to reign. Oh, when He comes to reign. I think about that. I can't say that without smiling. I can't say that without feeling joy and gladness. When he, when he comes to reign, it's going to be different. And He is most certainly coming to reign. The Lord reigns. It's a done deal. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Man, Whidbey? Fidalgo? San Juan? Even Quimus? <laughs> rejoice. Be glad. He says, let the islands do this. King Jesus wants the world to be glad at the prospect of His coming. We should rejoice in this, not be terrified of it, not be afraid or fearful or angry or mocking, as many do. No, receive this with joy. This is good news. And Jesus wants the world to be glad, even to the furthest islands. Which is why the, it's the use of the word, let the many islands be glad. What he's talking about is the furthest places on earth. The every section, every corner, even out into the middle of the seas. If there's an island, there's one human inhabitant. Let him be glad that the Lord is coming. Jesus said in Acts 1.6, when they had come together, they were asking Him, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And He said, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be My witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth, Whidbey Island. Okay, I added Whidbey Island. But that's, that's the idea. Let the islands be glad. May there be no place on the planet untouched by gladness at the prospect of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Be glad. Are you glad tonight? Are you? Alright, okay, good. Maybe you had a tough day and you walked in here kind of... Ugh. Well, I hope worship's on feet because I'm not, you know. I hope there's something joyful in the teaching because I'm a little... Be ye glad at the prospect of the coming of the Lord. The Lord reigns. By the way, Isaiah loves the word islands. uses it more than any other book in the Bible. The, the prophet does. He uses it eight times. Sometimes it's translated islands, sometimes coastlands, but it should be islands. It's Iyim in the Hebrew. It's that same word that he uses. Isaiah 11, verse 11, he says, It will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time. He's done it once. He recovered His people, Judah from Babylon, recovered them to the land one time. He will again recover a second time with His hand the remnant of His people who will remain from Assyria and Egypt and Pathros and Cush and Elam and Shinar and Hamat and from the islands of the sea. The islands. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 42.10, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing His praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all those who dwell in them. Songs of gladness across the earth from every location. Songs of gladness because the King is coming. Are you glad? Be glad in this. We look forward to this. I think the greatest tragedy 
in the history of mankind was missing His first coming. The people didn't see it coming. Didn't see it happen. Didn't realize Jesus was there among them. Oh, a few did. Praise the Lord if you did, or we wouldn't be here tonight. Glad of His second coming. But His first coming was tragic in that they killed Him. Crucified Him. The religious leaders saw Him as a threat. The Romans didn't care. Humanity missed the opportunity of what we could say, a golden age starting right there. You you realize that would have happened had they received Jesus as Lord and King right then and there? And yet, God knew there had to be a sacrifice. And so in that horrific tragedy of the crucifixion of the Christ came the glory and the wonder of the gladness we have tonight that He's coming. That He's coming the second time. But i got to tell you, while the return of Jesus should be the greatest gladness for some, it will be a greater tragedy than the first time. It will be a tragedy of deepest gloom. There's a serious tone, and I mention this on purpose, in Psalm 97, more than any of the other in this cluster of psalms, all talking about the Lord reigns, all very positive, all very upbeat, but Psalm 97 goes to a little bit darker spot. While it calls for the gladness and the joy of His return, the declaration, the Lord reigns, speaks of His assumption of rule over the whole earth but begins with a global cataclysmic event. Verse 2, clouds and thick darkness surround Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. But He's coming in the clouds. And you just think of the big, massive thunderheads rolling out in the sky, dark and thick and black, and lightning flashes and thunder rolling. And here comes the Lord in the thickness of the darkness and the clouds. It's a heavy deal when He comes. Joel the prophet refers to it as the day of the Lord. And in his prophecy, he specifically talks about the darkness And the clouds. And in fact, Joel's prophecy is one of the reasons why some people want to date this psalm later. They want to say Joel prophesied it and then the psalmist wrote a song about what Joel said. But it just as easily works the other way that David prophesied about it in 1000 BC and Joel came along and went, yeah, that's good, I'll use that. (laughs) Really doesn't matter because the Holy Spirit's the one who is calling all this stuff to be written in the first place. But Joel chapter 2 verse 2 says, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be like it after it to the years of many generations. I was asked in our staff meeting this morning, he's coming with the clouds. Are the clouds people? Because remember, Jesus says the same thing. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, with great glory. And we've talked about the the clouds. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 refers to the great cloud of witnesses. Could the clouds perhaps be the people? And I think based on the description in Psalm 97, Joel chapter 2, it's both. And And I said, imagine those big thunderheads rolling out over all the earth and the gloom and the thick darkness and the heavy clouds and the thunder begins to roll and the lightning begins to strike and it looks fearful and terrifying and all of a sudden Jesus busts through the clouds on a white horse, Revelation 19, followed by the entire church. Riding white horses. A great cloud of witnesses flooding in, coming down upon the earth. And for those looking for His coming... 
those expectant, there will be great joy. Most of that joy is going to be behind him as we follow on. What's interesting to me about this psalm is the contrast. On the one hand, for some, the day of the Lord is gloom. For others, the day of the Lord is bring it on. It's glory. You know, God's not a God of gloom. I understand the day of the Lord is a day of darkness and gloom. And you might read that and go, wow, bummer, depressing. Hey, Joel's use of the word gloom, the word gloom there in the Hebrew is more likely a terrifying darkness than an Eoric depression. Eoric is a good word. You can use that. You know that, that gloom, we read that gloom and darkness. Oh, people are just going to be like, oh. No, no, it's, it's more terror. More overwhelmed at the coming of the Lord when the King of all created things visits this tiny planet again. And for many people, it will be terrifying. And I don't say that with any joy in my heart. And I don't say that just thinking, ah, they deserve it, because I deserve it. I deserve to be terrified. I deserve the worst that God could possibly do. So I'm not saying it that way, but understand that in His coming, there's this amazing heaviness and fullness and and weight to His coming. And at the same time, gladness. See, we await tonight, and I've already asked you, we await His coming with gladness of heart, with joy, with excitement and expectation. We want to see Him come. And there's joy in that. And yet, for others, the idea of His coming is heavy and gloomy. It's terrifying. People have a tendency to mock things that they are terrified of. Don't want to experience or or recognize or even authenticate things that are dark. But Malachi talks about both experiences happening at the same time. Malachi chapter 4 verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Terrifying. But Malachi 4 verse 2, the very next verse, he says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Which sounds glorious. I know some of you are looking around going, I'm not skipping about like a calf. I think you will on that day. I think you're going to be overwhelmed with joy. I can't wait to see Paul Schultz skipping around like a calf. I just think that will be glorious. Excited in heaven. Praise the Lord, it's come. Some will be doing that and others will be terrified. And the difference is who fears the Lord now. Do you fear Him today? With reverence and awe and respect and great love that He is the one true God. And if you're in that place, then you do look for His coming with gladness. But you're either going to fear Him today with a holy fear or you're going to fear Him that day with a holy dread. It's going to be one or the other. Remember though, He comes to establish a throne, He says in verse 2, of righteousness and justice. These are the foundational principles of His rule, of His throne. And this is something the world has only ever tasted. Little bits of justice. You know those days where something finally goes right. 
Someone's finally treated well. Finally there's justice. And we all kind of go, oh, wow, so there still is justice in the world. We get it sometimes. Righteousness seems more and more rare. But there are those moments where we're like, oh, the truth was just pronounced. Or, wow, I I, I experience what God's Word is saying is, is true and right. And yet in this world, there's so much a lack of righteousness. But this is the foundation of His throne, of His kingdom. Verse 3 says, fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. These are those who have set themselves against God. I remind you, it is not the desire of God to fry people. He does not want to do that. That's not the kind of God he is. Oh yeah, let's create hell. Then we'll create man so we can send some of them there. Turn them into ash. That will be awesome. That would be more like me. (laughs) Take them out. Yeah. Guys against me. (laughs) But not God. He doesn't desire to burn anyone. But those who are set against him. Isaiah picks up on this. Isaiah 26 verse 11. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, yet they do not see it. They see your zeal for the people and are put to shame. Indeed, fire will devour your enemies. Literally, fire will consume your adversaries. And the Hebrew pastor quotes Isaiah on that one. Hebrews 10.26, If we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. The adversaries, again, are those who set themselves against God or those who say, yeah, I've heard about God. I've read that Bible of yours, but I'm doing it my way. I don't really care what the Bible says. We go about it my way. Wow. A far more terrifying place to be is someone who has heard the word of truth and denied it. Better to be someone who doesn't have a clue than someone who knows something of the righteousness and justice of His throne and yet sets themselves against it. Verse 4, His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. Well, when did that happen? Keep your finger there and go back to the book of Exodus. Genesis, Exodus. Exodus chapter 19 in your Bibles. God shows up at Mount Sinai. And it's fascinating to me the way He shows up and the way He chooses to reveal Himself. I want you to think about this, that God had already walked in the garden in the cool of the day, which seems more uh, friendly with Adam. We know that God appeared to Abram as a man. We know that Abraham was even called a friend of God. We know he wrestled with Jacob and didn't just kill him outright, though he could have with a blink of the eye. We know he showed up in a little burning bush and talked to Moses. But here at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, verse 16, came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet, that's the shofar, that's the first time that that word is used in the Bible right there. So you can say that Psalm 1916 is a shofar, show good moment. 
A very loud trumpet so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. Can you imagine being at the foot of that mountain? Is anybody here at the foot of Mount St. Helens when it blew? Okay, I didn't think so. Were you close? Were you, Paul? You heard it. Okay, but you weren't there. You were here. In schedule. Okay, okay. But you weren't right at the base of the mountain? Good, because you would have been skipping about like a calf from the skull, I can tell you. (laughs) Mount St. Helens blew. Think about that. That's a good picture for what was going on at Sinai. Fire going up, smoke. The whole entire mountain, the Bible tells us, was trembling (laughs) along with the people of Israel. And it says, verse 19, when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Oh, I really like that picture. There's a little rapture picture for you. The Lord came down and Moses went up. That's what's going to happen. Jesus will come down, we're going to go up, we'll meet Him in the clouds and forever be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4. But what a picture. The Lord came down. He spoke. It was thunder. The whole mountain shook. The people were terrified. And I asked this question, why did He appear that way? He didn't have to. Walked with Adam. Talked with Abraham. Met with Moses. I mean, the burning bush was cool, but it wasn't a whole entire mountain shaking. Why does God show up this way here? And I would just answer, call it a foretaste of glory divine. God giving a snapshot of His second coming. A foretaste, a a picture, a foreshadowing of Jesus in His return. That we might have a sense of this. And even later when when the psalmist would write, Psalm 97, that his lightnings lit up the world and the earth saw and trembled, we could go, oh yeah, oh yeah, Exodus 19. That's right, at Mount Sinai. We've seen that before. We have a sense of that. And God is so good. He's such a teacher. He gives us these snapshots throughout history. So that when he says, and by the way, this is what's coming, we can go, oh, okay, like Sinai... But when He comes, it's going to be the whole world. The whole thing. Jesus, by the way, tied lightning into His second coming. Matthew 24, 27, He said, Just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And we've said before, well, that that implies that He's coming from the way of the east. Which is exactly what Ezekiel prophesies. Ezekiel 43, He saw Him coming from the east and entering into the temple. In through the eastern gate. But it's more than just the direction He's coming from. I believe it's what's going on when He's coming. And that is the lightning is flashing. That's not just a metaphor. But it's a reality of what's taking place. The King is coming. Expect lightning to flash brightly. Verse 5, the mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. Another picture of Sinai. Shaking and quaking and blowing. And at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. But I want you to note this. Jot this down or circle these words in the Bible. The words lit up. Lit up. In verse 4, His lightnings lit up the world. 
The word saw, the earth saw and trembled. The word melted in verse 5, the mountains melted like wax. All of these are also in the perfect tense. The prophetic perfect. What does that mean? It means he's describing things that are coming, not things that have happened in the past. This is not past tense in the Hebrew. If you're hearing the psalm sung, if you're reading the psalm as a good Jewish boy or girl, and you're going through and you're saying, the Lord reigns, the Lord has begun to reign is what he's saying. His lightnings have lit up or are lighting up as he comes. They're lighting up the world. The earth saw is not past tense. It's the earth sees it happening and is trembling as the Lord reigns. It's the mountains are melting as the Lord returns in his glorious coming. All of this is future tense. All of this is pointing future in the prophetic perfect tense. Which gives us a sense of the entire psalm is looking forward. It's rolling ahead in this juggernaut of the return of Jesus. And by the way, as far as the mountains melting are concerned, Isaiah 40 verse 4 says, Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's guaranteed. It's coming. And when He comes, this is the result. This is the description. Psalm 97 speaks of Jesus' return. Micah chapter 1 verse 3, Behold, the Lord is coming forth from His place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under Him. And the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. And you might recall the Revelation 6.14 in our previous study, says the sky split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. So don't get comfortable here on Whidbey. This island's moving. And the mountains are coming down when the King is certainly coming. As He returns. And we have gladness because... Hebrews 12.28 says, we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This world is going to be shaken to the core. But we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So let us show gratitude by which may we, we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. Gratitude or gloom? It's up to you. Keep going. Verse 6. The heavens declare His righteousness and all the peoples have seen His glory. Reminds me of Psalm 19. Verse 1 that says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. And it's just awesome. It's just awesome. What is the name of that comedian? Oh, he was on the British version of The Office. You guys know who I'm talking about? Ricky Gervais. Ricky Gervais is hysterical and an avowed atheist. And he thinks himself quite wise. In fact, he's incredibly arrogant when it comes to talking about atheistic things. And he was, it's amazing, because I heard him interviewed this last week, and he was talking about how. 
first of all, he doesn't believe in God, any of it. You know, he doesn't believe in the Bible. It's all there. And, and his attitude is, a thousand years from now, there will be no Bible. There will just be books of science. Because science is consistent. <laughs> you know, a thousand years ago, all the books of science that they had then are obsolete today. This is still around. Anyway, Ricky Gervais was talking about how impressed he was, however, in the same breath, same conversation, how he said, Did you know that you being you, the chance of that happening, of you being the the precise exact person that you are, in other words, that one particular egg meeting a single sperm and the two hitting it off over coffee. I said he's funny. The chance of that happening, of you being who you are, is one in four quadrillion. That is 15 zeros. Now I heard it, and he was impressed by it. He says, just, isn't that just amazing? And I'm like, yeah, and there's no God, Ricky. What up? How can you say that in one sentence and in the next sentence try to deny the existence of God when the, when the possibility of, of Bill being Bill, and we're all very glad that you are and I'm not, but that you being who you are, it, it, it's, it's like astronomical, but it happened by chance. It's all just a roll of the dice. You know what? Listen, it goes further because I looked it up. I'm like, is Ricky Gervais right? Is it really one in four quadrillion? It is. Furthermore, check this out. The odds of your genealogical line remaining unbroken long enough to create you is one in ten with 45,000 zeros. I don't even know what that number is. Big. And every single one of your ancestors also had to be be conceived to become exactly who they were along this genealogical line ultimately to result in who you are, which scales the chance of your existence down to 1 in 10 to the 2,640,000th power. That's a big number. I remember when I was in high school chemistry, they told me there was a number that was so big they just called it a mole. And I'm like, well, have it removed things. I don't know what you're talking about. All the peoples, he writes, all the peoples have seen his glory, verse 6. Guess what? You just did. Those stats I gave you, they're just part of the vast eternity of knowledge and understanding that speak to the glory of God. He is awesome. He is overwhelming. He is amazing. What He has done in creating this world and the universe and placing you and me here. Unfathomable. All the peoples have seen His glory. By the way, that phrase, the heavens declare, in verse 6, And all the peoples have seen are also in the prophetic perfect. So it's all looking ahead. The heavens will declare and all the peoples will have seen His glory. That's an absolute declaration with real-time implications of the return of Jesus Christ. Now, all of these verses share, as I've been saying, a contrast between the sheer delight of those who are glad of His coming and the shameful dismay of those who are not. But read on. Verse 7. Let all those be ashamed 
who serve graven images. In light of what I just told you, idolatry is about the stupidest thing anybody could ever engage in. When you think about the inimitable reality of God's glory and and His existence and His creative power and His majesty and what He's done, and then you think someone worships a rock. What? A, A hunk of wood that's been whittled down to look like something. A cow made of gold. It is ridiculous. And he says, let those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship Him, all you gods. Zion heard this and was glad. And the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. For you are the Lord Most High over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. So note this, verse 8 talks about the rejoicing of Zion. Well, Zion's rejoicing in verse 8 because of its great deliverance. That happens at the coming of Jesus. So the the psalm is consistent throughout. Psalm 48, verse 3 says, God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. Psalm 48, verse 11, let Mount Zion be glad and let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, which is almost word for word quoted in Psalm 97, verse 8. Zion's glad and the daughters of Judah rejoice. And this is a promise that is coming. It is, again, prophetic, perfect. It's coming. Isaiah said in Isaiah 62, 11, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. Well, how do you know that's Zion on earth and not the heavenly Mount Zion? Because he says, lo, your salvation comes. So, you see, it's lo. Sorry, that was just a joke. Romans 11.26, some of you are going to get that tomorrow. (laughs) Romans 11.26 says, and so all Israel will be saved. I love that verse. Just as it is written... The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Why am I pointing that out? Because verse 8 is part of this that Zion is indicative of the second coming. The joy of Zion, the glory of Zion, gladness in Zion will happen at the second coming of Jesus Christ when the Deliverer Himself comes. Verse 9 makes a statement, You, Lord, are most high, Elyon, over all the earth. Over all the earth. Not just in Judea. Not just among the people of Israel. Not just in pockets of Christian faith throughout the world, but El Elyon, He is the Lord Most High. I am Most High over all the earth. Yahweh Elyon is Yahweh I am, Elyon Most High. The I am Most High is on the planet. He's here. He's among us. Oh, I'm not talking spiritually right now. I'm talking in the prophetic perfect. Then, He's here. I am? Well, wait. Rick, I am Yahweh. That, that's God. You're saying God's here? I'm saying God is here in the perfect representation of Jesus Christ. Who is, I am. Remember what He said? John eight fifty six, Talking to the Jews. Arguing, really, as they were arguing against him, set against him. He said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it. And guess what? He was glad. 
See, when you see Jesus, it makes you glad. There's always gladness in the coming of Jesus when you're looking for Him. And Abram was, and Abraham rejoiced that he got to see the day of Jesus. When did he get to see the day of Jesus? We'll talk about that when we get to Genesis 14. But Jesus says, Abraham saw my day, saw me, interacted with me, and was glad. The Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Which is one of the most profound and powerful things he ever said. Not bad English, but divine reality. Before Abraham was born, Yahweh. I am. And they freaked out. They sought to stone him. They couldn't get away with it. Before Abraham was born, I am. So yes, Yahweh Elyon, I am Most High, is now present on the earth at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But get this, this is where we come to part two in our notes, the cosmic conundrum. Okay, verses 7 through 9, we are presented with a cosmic conundrum that is God versus God's. Because he says in verse 7, worship him all you gods. And in verse 9, you are exalted far above all gods, which seems to imply, if we're just reading it as is, that he's talking about gods. And the word gods in verse 7 and in verse 9 is Elohim. Worship him, all you Elohim. That's what he's saying. You are exalted above all Elohim. Gods. So what is this conundrum? How do we answer this? Listen again. Just listen to what he said in Isaiah 43, where we started tonight. Before me, there was no God formed. And there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord. There is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. And there was no strange God among you. So you're my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God And as I already pointed out, he says, El, I am El. Singular, the only God. Underscored, El. Doesn't even go so far as to mention Elohim at that point, which is a name for God, our one true God. But I am El. There's only one God like Him. No other that is like Him. However, there are other gods. Did you know that? The Bible speaks of other Elohim. Now brace yourselves, but this is just biblical reality. Elohim, the emphasis in Psalm 97 is the sole deity of the Lord over all other beings. But there are other Elohim, at least the biblical use of the word, and two specific types of Elohim that are pointed to in this psalm. Number one, the fictitious gods of graven images. So you can include in those all the idols ever formed by the hands of man. You could include the Greek mythological gods and all those things worshipped as gods that are not God are considered, referred to biblically as Elohim. That's what he's talking about here. Let all those, verse 7, be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols, worship Him, all you gods, all you Elohim. Gods with a little g. They're not really God. They're not really gods. But they're idols, and it's idol worship He's referring to. And here's the thing about graven images. They always have a source. 
You can always follow the graven image to something behind it. And Paul talks about this, and just listen to this, or you can turn there, but I'm going to start reading right away. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul addresses this very issue. That while you may think that you have an idol and you're worshiping this idol, there's something behind the idol that you are truly worshiping if you are worshiping an idol. 1 Corinthians 10.14 reads, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Let me just say this before I read any further. I grew up in a time where idolatry seemed irrelevant. As a kid growing up, I would hear about idolatry in the Bible. Idol worship that went on in Israel, and that's why they ended up going into Babylonian captivity, and of course Babylon, the capital of idolatry. And I knew there was idolatry in the world back in those days, but not anymore. Not now, right? Not really idolatry. I mean, I know there's the Buddha and I guess people, but not in America. Not idolatry, right? Oh, listen up. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? So as we're taking communion, are we not sharing? Paul says in the blood of Christ. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one loaf. Then he says, look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then, Paul says, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And what was going on is you had Corinthian Christians who were still going to pagan temples. Kind of doing both. Communion with the fellowship on Sunday morning and Thursday afternoon heading off to the pagan temple. And if you're partaking in idolatry and idol worship and pagan sacrifice, you are partaking, Paul says, let me be clear, in demons. Because there is a thing behind the idol. There is a spiritual being. There is, listen, an Elohim. There are gods behind those idols, but they are not the God. And they're not gods by any stretch of the imagination in comparison to Almighty God, but they are spiritual beings nonetheless. And idolatry is sacrificed to evil Elohims. Are you with me? So the fictitious gods are what the psalmist is partially talking about, these Elohim. And you might say, well, if, if Psalm 97, reason this out with me, if Psalm 97 is all about the return of Jesus... The, the second coming. If this is an end times psalm, why does it even deal with idolatry? I mean, that's not really a thing, is it? Hey, idolatry is a sign of the end times. And if you look at what's going on in our Western culture, America, Europe, idolatry is on the rise. I never would have thought that in my lifetime, that in America, idolatry would once again be a thing. But it's on the rise. It's growing. Idol worship. We're talking about uh, people worshiping supernatural beings. 
talking about people looking at amulets and charms and crystals as power, not realizing that behind those things are demons, demonic power, icons, teraphim. The Bible talks about teraphim. Those are household gods. People have them. People have amulets and things and and, and items that they will pray to or look to or use as a focus of spiritual energy. It's crazy and it is spreading in Western culture and I never would have thought that that would be one of the signs of the end times, but it is. Idolatry. So it fits right in with the rest of the psalm. This growing deception. Because behind all of this, again, are demons, but this brings us to the other focus The focus of the psalmist is not just the fictitious gods of graven images, but the factual gods of supernatural existence. So jot this down if you're a note taker. Note this, that Elohim, which means a plurality of three or more, is the Hebrew word with three applications. Elohim is used of God himself, who is three in one, our triune God. All of Genesis chapter 1, the name God, the word God is used, Elohim speaking of our God. And most of the places in the Hebrew Scriptures where we see the word God, it is speaking of Him. Elohim. El Shaddai. El, the one true God. But Elohim also is used of two other things in Exodus 21, verse 6, 22, verse 9, and Psalm 82, verses 6 and 7. I won't read right now, but Elohim refers to human judges. God actually calls them Elohim. Because they have divine authority as judges over the people, God refers to them in that way as as Elohim, as God's little g. So human judges. In fact, Jesus even refers to it. It's another study for another time. But he says, what do you do with this? Haven't I called you gods? And it completely confounded the Pharisees, which he was so good at doing. But Elohim is either God himself or human judges or the third use of Elohim is angels. Angels. Spiritual beings. As we see in verse 9, which is what he's talking about here when he says, you are exalted far above all gods. So worship him, all you gods. Well, an idol can't worship, but I'll tell you what, what's behind the idol can worship. He is far above all gods. He's not just far above idols. He is far above all that the idols represent. He's far above all other possible spiritual beings, supernatural beings, angels, archangels, cherubim, seraphim, and those that Paul refers to as principalities, powers, authorities in the the heavenly realm, in the dark places. Ephesians 3.10, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There are other Elohim Again, using the word usually to define or describe spiritual beings. But watch this. This is the clincher of Psalm 97 being a Savior Psalm. We're not just generically looking at the second coming of the Lord generic, but this is how it ties in directly to Jesus Christ Himself. And this is how we know that the entire Psalm is talking about Jesus. If you look again in verse 9, you are exalted far above all gods, but specifically verse 7, Worship Him, all you gods. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. And I want you all to turn there. Just one verse, but you have to see this. You might even want to make a little note in your margins about this. Hebrews chapter 1. Where the Hebrew pastor directly quotes Psalm 97 
verse 7. And he's quoting to talk about Jesus. Now watch, look at the verse. It's just mind-blowing. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. Note the exact language. And when He again brings the firstborn into the world. Okay, stop right there. When He again brings the firstborn into the world. He already brought the firstborn into the world once. This is when He again brings the firstborn into the world. He says, and this is a quote of Psalm 97 verse 7, Let all the angels of God worship Him. Wait, it says let all... Worship Him all you gods, right? In Psalm 97 verse 7. In the LXX, the Septuagint, the Greek translation, which is what's being quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, it's literally, let all the angels of God worship Him. Elohim is the word. It's translated in the, into the Greek as angels. The translators understood Elohim can refer to spiritual beings and so they use the word angelos in the Greek. Angels, let all the angels of God worship Him. Worship who? Well, it's Jesus when He again brings the firstborn into the world. The firstborn is Jesus Christ. Not creationally. Jesus isn't the first one created. He's the firstborn positionally. He's the Son of God inheritance-wise, which in Jewish thinking is the one who has all the authority, rights, and power of the Father. When He brings Him again, second time, into the world, He declares, He states, He commands, let all the gods worship Him. Let all the angels worship Him. This was a stunner to me because I'd never read it this way. I always thought when He again brings the firstborn into the world, He says, let all the angels of God worship Him. I thought we were talking about Bethlehem. Glory to God in the highest. You know what they sang? In the, I don't know if that's the tune they used. But that's what they said. As they're in the skies over the shepherd fields. Glory to God in the highest. Sang the host. Shouted the heavenly host. Over the fields, Luke chapter 2, verse 14. But this is not that time. Hebrews 1, 6 is when He again brings the Son into the world. When He again returns His second coming, His second appearance. And at that time, God says, let all the Elohim worship Him. The One who is far above all the Elohim. And this is what Paul is talking about. Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Psalm 97, you can go back there. Psalm 97, verse 7, Worship Him, all you gods, is in the imperative form. It is a must, it is an absolute, it is an emphatic command. And so what we discover is there is no cosmic conundrum after all. All the gods, angels, powers, rulers, principalities, all will worship the one true God, Jesus Christ. Yahweh El Yon, I am Most High, right here among us when He comes to reign. And we end part three with a call to cheer. A call to cheer. Not, not applause, but a call to gladness. Verse 10, Hate evil, you who love the Lord. I like that. 
You see, the two are mutually exclusive. You either love the Lord and you hate evil, or you love evil and hate the Lord. It's not a mixture. You can't love both. You don't hate both. You love the one and hate the other. You can't love the Lord and still have an affinity for evil, a desire for evil things, an enjoyment of that which is sick and depraved. And what happens to us in all of our lives is as we are sanctified, isn't it interesting, the longer you follow the Lord, the more you walk with Him, the more you recognize and are actually repulsed by evil things. I can tell you, when I was a younger man, I was not half as repulsed by evil things as I am now. I could go see horror movies and kind of be intrigued. And I knew it was wrong. And I knew it was evil. I knew it was demonic. But I was 17. That's cool. Great effect. Now, I just, I don't like demonic stuff. It just bugs me. I'm uncomfortable with it when I see it. It's not, you know, the more you love the Lord, the more you're going to hate evil. Which is kind of a key for us because the idea is not to try and hate evil. The, The idea is just love the Lord. You love Jesus. You focus on Jesus. You think about Jesus. You're glad of His coming. All of that will make evil tasteless. And then actually gross and untasteful. And you won't want to have anything to do with it. Just love the Lord. Jesus said, and I love the, the quote. I think I shared this last Wednesday. Luke fourteen twenty six. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's intense. I remember reading that as a 17-year-old going, okay, I can hate my brother. (laughs) That I can work out. The rest of it, not so sure. I mean, he adds them all in here. Maybe you had a horrible relationship with your father and you can say, I can hate that. I can hate what my mother did to me. I read through the verse, I love my mother and father. Just want to make that clear for anyone who asks. But then he says, and wife? Why? I come to Jesus and Jesus says, you got to hate Cheryl? My kids? My brother still, eh? No, no, I'm kidding. I love my brother. And even my own life. If you don't hate all of that, you cannot be my disciple. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, that all other things, even other things you love, by comparison to your love for the Lord, would appear as hate. Jesus is saying, that's how much I want you to love me. And by the way, what happens is, as I love Him that way, My love for my mother, father, wife, children, brother, sisters, friends grows. But it grows in a godly way. It's no longer a self-serving love. I love you for what you can do for me. I love you because He does. And whatever you do to me is really inconsequential because He loves you, therefore I love you. Love the Lord. Hate evil. Love the Lord. And He continues and says... Love the Lord who preserves the souls of His godly ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. That word preserves is literally guards or watches over. He watches over your soul to protect it, to take care of it, to look after you. I love that it says the souls of His godly ones. He guards my mind. 
What did Paul say? And my heart in Christ Jesus? He guards my mind. That this is part of what the Lord does. He watches over my mind, guards and protects my mind. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say He guards my physical body. By the way, I read something today. Good news. That if you eat apples and drink tea, you'll live longer. Right here. I love apples. I drink tons of tea. I'm like, yes! But the article went on to say, especially those who are heavy drinkers and smoking, so I guess I need to take those up. (laughs) I'm going around the house reading this article. Look, look, tea, apples, it's me! Anyway. (laughs) I don't even know where I am. Oh, he delivers them from... Okay, so here's the thing. He guards your mind. And say He's going to guard your body. In other words, there's going to be a need for deliverance. He does deliver us. He does deliver His godly ones. You're going to need to be delivered from what? Well, I don't know. But the point is, He'll guard your mind even though evils befall you. Even though negative things happen to you in this world, and they will. And we make no bones about that. You read through the Scriptures, there is no guarantee that you're just going to sail, cruise through life, everything fine. Everything. I gave my life to Jesus and suddenly got covered with a Teflon coating and anything bad just bounces off. No. In fact, oftentimes when you give your life to Jesus, life gets harder because the enemy is going harder after you. But you will be delivered because He promises He delivers them from the hand of of the wicked. We are not promised there will be no casualties in this temporary life, but we are promised deliverance. It will come. It will happen. Verse 11, he says, Light is sown like seed for the righteous, and gladness for the upright in heart. And the Hebrew word here for sown is also, well, it's, so, it's one consonant off from the Hebrew, Hebrew word for dawn. So what's being said here, maybe light is sown, which is very poetic and kind of cool, the idea of light being planted and then growing. Or it may be, probably more likely, it's light dawns. Okay, the more ancient manuscripts say light dawns. So if it's light dawns, it's still the same picture. This beautiful picture of the implantation of light into God's people and it it, it grows like morning, like the day. So whether it's light sown growing up out of a person or light dawns, like, wow, it's dawning on me what this is really all about. It's that brightening clarity of the day. If you're righteous, if you're following Jesus, if you're, if you're upright in Him, man, the light is increasing. It's, it's clarity. It's getting brighter. Have you found, those of you who have followed Jesus, let me just say, how many people here have followed Jesus for 40 years or more? Alright, so those of you who have, have you found that the light has grown brighter? I'm not saying your life has gotten better. I'm saying, have you noticed that you understand better now than you did? If you walk with Jesus, that's the picture, the brightness. It clarifies. Things make more sense. Things that I never would have seen before, that I see now and understand now and get, it's the brightening clarity of day. It's Proverbs 4.18 that the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter and brighter until the full day. It's a promise and it's true. And you could say light dawns on the righteous. By the way, the word righteous is also those those who are justified. 
That is, those who are made righteous. You're not righteous because you're just so good a person, Dean. Bro. And Lori Vest like, all right, right? That's not why I've seen him. It's not why he's right. He's righteous. You're righteous, brother, because you've been justified in Jesus Christ. Amen? And Lori Beth can't counter that. Our righteousness is given. We're the justified. So, so don't think white dawns on the, on the righteous, the self-right. No, no. Pharisaical. No. Light dawns on those who are justified by Jesus Christ. Things get increasingly clear. And with that clarity comes again gladness for the upright in heart. And that word upright means those who are straight. If you're straight, you're correct, you're doing things God's way, you're on His path, that's being upright. And when you walk that path, get this, teenagers, get this. When you walk that path, you will be glad. Go off on your own and you will not know gladness. You will know fear and terror and anxiety and horror and all the darkness of life. But walk the path that is right. This ancient path. Walk the path that the Lord lays out before you and you will find gladness in that. It's a beautiful picture. The light is brightening. The day is growing brighter. I'm on a straight and level path. Man, people talk about being level-headed. I would much rather be level-hearted. My heart is on the level path following the Lord. And finally, verse 12, Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to His holy name. We end with gladness because we began with the Lord reigns. Which is not only the Lord is coming and we'll be glad on that day, but we know He's coming, so we're glad right now. The gladness floods in. This is the end result. It's the end result of the certainty of the coming King, of the worship of Christ Jesus over all gods, and of this call to cheer, to to gladness. What about tonight? Why not right now? Be glad. Allow yourself to be glad in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you don't know the day I've had. You're right, I don't. And and the way it sounds, I'm glad. (laughs) Be glad right now. And by the way, he didn't say be silly. He said be glad. And there's a huge difference. Be glad. Which is to be filled with the joy of the Lord. Some might say, man, in this day and age, it is not practical to be glad. Tell me the practicality of it. Okay. One of my favorite old songs by a group, ironically called Glad. Remember the old uh, Christian group, Glad? They did instrumental stuff, some really cool albums that came out in the 80s, a little bit into the 90s. They had some acapella stuff. They have an acapella song that I still, when I hear it, I choke up. And the song is called Be Ye Glad. It says, In these days of confused situations, in this night of a restless remorse, when the heart and the soul of a nation lay wounded and cold as a corpse, from the grave of the innocent Adam comes a song bringing joy to the sad. Oh, your cry has been heard, and the ransom has been paid up in full. Be ye glad. And the chorus says, Oh, be glad, 
Oh, be ye glad. Every debt that you ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord. Be ye glad. Be ye glad. Be ye glad. It is hard to be anything else when you recognize what God has done. But the psalm is not about what God has done. The psalm is about what God is about to do. And in that, be glad. Your debt has been paid up in full. That means life everlasting is promised. This is prophetic, perfect gladness. And it is intensely practical. It isn't just silliness. It isn't just being glad in spite of all the horrors of my life. It is be ye glad in the same way that the prophet Habakkuk was glad. And I'll leave it with him. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet... I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me walk on my high places. So the psalmist says, the Lord reigns. Be ye glad. Oh, we remember, Lord, all our sins have been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord. So we can look back to Calvary. And be glad. And your word says the Lord reigns. So we can look forward to your coming and be glad. We're sandwiched right in between the two. Lord, fill our hearts with the rejoicing and the joy and the gladness that comes only from you, only by you, the one true God. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, above all gods, the Savior who reigns supreme and eternal, reigning in our hearts right now and coming to reign on a day not far. O Lord, in this we are glad. In Jesus' name, amen.